My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finance to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Dan McCrum, who's part of the Financial Times investigations team and author of the recently released book, Money Men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud and a fight for the truth. Dan, thanks for joining the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me on. No problem. So yeah, I guess if we just start, what was your influence for writing the book? I mean, well, so as a journalist, you're not really supposed to become the story, right? But this is one of those crazy tales where it just sort of picked me up by the ankles and turned my life upside down. And so when I, what the book tells really is the story of this big investigation done by the Financial Times and sort of the ins and outs of that and how it steadily got crazier and madder and sort of took us to places I don't think anyone at the FT had ever been before. And at the same time, it's the story of the company, which we're investigating, which has all these sort of mad characters, like the lunatic racing driver and, you know, the chief executive in his black turtleneck, sort of bamboozling investors. And so it's this sort of this cat and mouse tale of us basically trying to expose a big fraud. Yeah. So if I'm correct, I think you basically got a tip off to start with and you started investigating and that's where you actually got involved in this whole thing. And I go, is it true that they were like following you and then the gem regulators were after you and all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. So it, it starts out pretty normally. So back in the summer of 2014, so eight years ago, I was trying to write about companies with sort of funky accounting. Maybe they were fraudulent. And I get a tip from this hedge fund manager. Would I be interested in some German gangsters? And so I start looking at this little German company he mentions. And it describes itself as a bit of European PayPal. There's something to do with payments, but it's pretty complicated. And I think it turns out that's deliberate. And it looks a little bit fraudy. And so I start to investigate. And as I do, and you know, this is over a period of several years, each time we sort of dig a little bit deeper, things escalate a bit more. So we start off with like angry lawyers' letters. Then hackers are trying to break into our email. Then people start getting followed around by private detectives. Um, you know, there's a $10 million bribe offered at one point to one of my colleagues to make the stories go away. And then it sort of all starts to come to a head in 2019 when we start publishing real evidence from inside the company. You know, we start to get whistleblowers telling us there's fraud going on here. And what happens is the company cooks up this conspiracy theory that I'm working in league with speculators to manipulate Wirecard's share price. And I'm leaking my stories to them before they're published in the Financial Times. And the sort of the incredible thing is the European authorities believe this. So they sort of do some extraordinary measures to protect the company. They suspend uh, sort of a form of speculation on the short selling. So basically people kind of attack this valuable um, national champion. And then they investigate me and my colleagues 
there's a sort of a prop, you know, the police are properly looking into what we've been up to. Wow, it's an it's amazing story and, and hard to believe, I'm sure. Uh, so if I, you mentioned there that Wirecard sort of like the European PayPal, so I'm not sure if you can go more into that and what the company is and I guess, yeah, what it was meant to do. Yeah, so the best way to understand Wirecard is it process payments. So if you have a website and you want to take credit or debit cards, it's the company which does that for you. And, you know, it's a little bit complicated, but fundamentally quite simple. It gets money from your bank account to the person you want to pay. And lots of companies do that. Lots of banks do it. It's quite straightforward. But what Wirecard was very clever about doing was sort of wrapping it up in this sort of technological mystique. They said their technology was way better than everyone else's. You know, they used artificial intelligence, all sorts of things like that. And they, they were growing much faster than everyone else. And they were also, you know, they were, they were making massive profits, which was, again, quite unusual. So some people looked at that and thought, this is too good to be true. But you have these characters at the heart of the business who seem to charm everyone. So I mentioned, so there's the chief executive who, you know, is a former management consultant. And so he's always talking in like blue sky, big future, you know, the cashless society is coming. And he struts about on stage in a black turtleneck, like he's, you know, the cousin of Steve Jobs. And then you also have his sort of younger protege, who's sort of, uh, I mean, he's sort of my age, uh, you know, mid 40s now. And he's the most charming person that every, anyone has ever met. And um, he's constantly coming up with these harebrained schemes. And sort of he's the one who's running around keeping the plates spinning. But what I began to realize as I wrote the book is that he doesn't know what he's doing. Like he literally doesn't really understand their own business. And he's just sort of making it up as he goes along and improvising. But then, and that's where the story starts to get you know, really crazy, is it turns out he has all these strange friends. So he's trying to get to know Libyan militias and uh, Russian mercenaries. Yes, that's crazy. And that was uh, Jan, Jan Marcelek, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's a guy called uh, Jan Marcelek. And um, and uh, I, there's actually, I've got his wanted poster on the wall behind yeah. me, um, which has his sort of his face. It's like clean-shaven corporate photo and this uh, period where he sort of grows a giant big black bushy beard um, and uh, looks a little bit more sinister. And he disappeared. So one of the enduring aspects of the mystery is who was he working with? Because when the company collapsed in June 2020, sort of as a result of the stories I wrote in the Financial Times, um, he wasn't immediately arrested. So... So the company comes crashing down. Everybody can see that, okay, it is a fraud after all. And the police seem in no hurry to arrest him. And he's allowed to get on a private jet and fly to Belarus. And, uh, you know, the best reports place him in the outskirts of Moscow. Yeah, which is fascinating. I guess we'll get to, to him because I think he's taking a lot of the blame for, for what's happened. But if we look at Wirecard and where it started, it started in the late 1990s, you know, maybe a dot-com sort of bubble company. Uh, so I guess how did it go from that to becoming basically the technology darling of Germany and I guess Europe and uh, company 
in, in the DAX, which is like it's the top 40 companies in Germany. Well, I think one of the great lessons which a lot of people took from the first dot-com bubble was that you can literally just fake it till you make it. And, you know, as long as you spin a good story, people will throw money at you. So in some sense, you know, Wirecard's story is slightly unusual. So you have a, 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 distribu- a distributor for Vans trainers who sits next to a pornographer on a plane and gets into the business. And uh, he has to take payments. So he starts this payments company, which becomes Wirecard. And everyone just keeps doubling down and doubling down until suddenly it's one of Germany's biggest companies. And the thing to understand is everybody is desperate for big new technology companies because they're the new giants you know, that rule the world, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. So everyone wants to get in at the ground floor before it becomes really big. But also there's this sort of sense of national competition. So in Germany, they have a lot of big manufacturing companies, very well respected, but they don't really have many sort of global technology companies. There's basically one SAP, which makes software for big manufacturers. And so a lot of people, I think, looked at Wirecard and thought, hey, Europe has finally got a big tech company which can rival Silicon Valley and sort of, you know, the big Chinese companies. And that sort of blinded a lot of people to what was really going on. Yeah, I guess for them, as you said, it was national pride. So they're probably like, oh, UK trying to tear down a, you know, the, the German startup for their own gains or maybe the US. So I guess that's potentially where they're coming from as well. So they're trying to protect it at all costs without actually looking under the hood at what was happening. Yeah. And I think I think there's a lesson here for sort of people when you become emotionally invested in something. When you start to approach it on an emotional level, you explain away things which don't fit because you want it to be true and you want it to work. And so you see this again and again with sort of companies which get a big retail investor following. You know, people make a lot of money and they began to champion the company. And they also think, hey, I must be really smart because I bought this stock and now I'm making lots of money. So aren't I clever? And when you're in that sort of position, everything confirms your bias that it's great. And you just sort of find excuses for things which don't fit. Yeah, I think it's very dangerous being a, as you said, a, you know, that that supporter of say a company like Tesla, even though it's been very successful, or Bitcoin, or all these other, mm. other things. It's it's okay to, you know, like those stocks or companies, but to be, you know, that crazy person is a bit, a bit of a push, I think, and it's very dangerous. So, if we look at you know the fraud and when it, when you started to uncover it, I guess what were the first signs that you started to see? Uh, and then when did you realize like, wow, this is actually just, you know, it's not just dodgy, it's actually Enron level. <laughs> so, <to> be, <laughs> so when Maybe I first started big, looking yeah. at it, um, you know, there, there were a bunch of sort of particular accounting signals, which, you know, people who are looking for fraud pick up on. Some of them are a little bit technical. So, you know, something called trade receivables was growing faster than sales. But there were also you know, simpler things which you can look out for. So there's this phrase which um, a famous American short seller called Mark Gahoditz uses. Uh, there is never just one cockroach in the kitchen. So if you find that a company or a person is lying about one thing, 
they're probably lying about other things as well. And, and so when we looked at well, what Wirecard was doing, it had said it had bought a whole series of businesses in Asia, you know, big buyout spree, kept buying companies. But when you look closely, what it was saying about, you know, this activity it was doing didn't match what you found on the ground or in sort of, you know, local corporate filings or press releases. And so it was like, hang on, something funny is happening here. What's going on? But it was, but there was sort of one of the, one of the reasons why Wirecard was able to get away with it for so long was that there were two different theories. So a lot of people are looking at it and saying, hey, this is too good to be true. Some people thought it might be fraud, but other people thought it might be money laundering because it's processing payments, right? And so if you have moral flexibility and you're going to help process payments in gray areas or even just, you know, outright illegal things, you know, every nasty thing you might find online, then you could make a lot of money doing that. And I think because there were two theories, one sort of excused the other. You know, a lot of investors looked at it and went, well, maybe Wirecard doesn't want to talk in too much detail about its business because it's making so much money operating in these gray areas. So we just won't look too hard at them. Yeah, it's interesting. But then it people started to realize, hang on, this is actually fraud. And I think it really culminates in they had they were meant to have this amount of money in the Philippines, I think, if that's correct. And then once people started to investigate, it's like, hang on, it's actually not there. It was close to $2 billion, if that's correct. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, this is towards the end of the book and it's one yeah. of my absolute favorite mad stories because it just has the quality of farce. So we're reaching the point where, you know, the pressure is really building on Wirecard and they have their normal accounting firm, Ernst & Young, but they've been forced to appoint a second one KPMG to come in and check the work of the first because there's so much noise around them. And so they've told everybody that they have 2 billion euros in some special bank accounts in the Philippines. And for some complicated reason, they don't control them themselves. A lawyer is in charge of them. So everybody goes to the Philippines to meet the lawyer. And so you have this sort of big delegation of sort of German, very serious accountants, lawyers, who all troop to the Philippines and go into this office. And it turns out the guy is a bit of a minor celebrity. He's got a YouTube studio in his office. He's got one of those plaques, you know, one of those sort of 100,000 YouTube subscribers. And he sort of uses his channel to give advice on things like divorce and family law. And he walks into the room, you know, like an hour late, no apology whatsoever, and spends like half an hour talking about how important and influential he is. He knows the president of the Philippines. He knows all these famous judges and lawyers. And everyone is sitting there going, this is the guy who the German financial institution has found to look after 2 billion euros of their money. Um, and then they go downstairs and they go on a little trip and they've got police motorcycle outriders, which he somehow arranged to help them cut through the traffic to go and like find, go and see the banks. And it's completely crazy. 
But there's also a sense which they've convinced these accountants that their secret source is, you know, their chaotic genius. And that all of these strange things are what makes Wirecard so special and so profitable. And so they sort of go along with it. Yeah, and I guess you'd say for them, and, you know, this might be very stereotypical, I guess the German very classically, I guess, straight, bureaucratic, all that stuff. So maybe they're like, oh, this is just the way of the future. I'm not sure if you think that could be, yeah. (laughs) And I think people have a hard time dealing with psychopaths. You know, we, we're not, you, you know, we're used to like the way politicians lie. Like politicians generally don't like telling a direct lie. You know, they lie by omission or, um, you know, they'll answer with a question or, you know, they'll try and say something else. Whereas someone literally saying to you, black is white, is quite an unusual thing to encounter as an adult. And, um, and so, I don't know, maybe we have a blind spot when it comes to frauds like that. Yeah, you give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe, and that can yeah. give them enough time. So <laughs> during that, did they actually discover that the money was missing or? So they, so this some delegation of, you know, German businessmen get taken not to the big financial district, which is nearby, but they go with the police motorcycle outriders on a 40-minute car journey to this tiny little bank branch where they all crowd in and they basically fill the branch and there's no customers, just a few staff. One of them jumps up, looks a bit confused until the important lawyer goes, Wirecard, yes, Wirecard, we're here for Wirecard. And he goes, ah, right, Wirecard. And he hands over this envelope and inside is a piece of paper which says, yes, there is a billion euros in this set of accounts. Um, But what... And then the accountants basically spend three months trying to get comfortable with the idea that the money is really there. And um, what it comes down to in the end is they ask Wirecard to transfer some money from these accounts into Germany, just to prove that they can, that they really control this money the lawyer has. And, you know, the chief executive in his turtleneck keeps going, don't worry, the money will be here. Yeah, no, there's some problem. You know, it's sort of like he's saying the check is in the post, except for 400 million euros. Um, And eventually they can't, you know, no money arrives. And they finally get hold of the heads of these banks who say, yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. These accounts don't exist. And the whole thing just comes like within a, you know, about an hour or two the whole thing just comes crashing down. And when you heard that news, were you shocked or? It was amazing because uh, I was actually sat in this exact spot where I am now because it was during COVID. So we're all working from home. And I was very nervous because the accounting firm, Ernst & Young, one of the global big four, had said Wirecard's accounts were fit and proper every year for 10 years. And I was really nervous that they were going to be duped again. And if that had happened, my like career is basically over. Wirecard gets away with it. And it's a total disaster. Um, but if they don't agree to like sign off the accounts, then it's game over. Wirecard has finally run out of road. 
And so we're sitting here sort of waiting, waiting for um, the company to publish its annual results. And, you know, I'm up at six o'clock in the morning, constantly checking Twitter, headlines, websites, you know, has anything appeared? And nothing happens for a couple of hours. And then the stock market starts trading, which is unusual because normally big announcements come out before that happens. And so that's when you start to get the, well, maybe, maybe this is going to go our way. And then about 40 minutes later, the announcement comes out. Our 2 billion euros is missing. And as soon as I saw that, it was just like all of the pressure, like the criminal investigation, everything else just sort of disappeared in a flash. And it was like, I knew it was all over. It was amazing. I sort of burst into the kitchen and was running around, sort of whooping and yelling. Well, my children looked at me looking a bit confused, going, what's happening, Daddy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just uh, euphoria that you were right. And I guess the fact that you know, they were so hard against you for so long and so much pressure, just as like, hang on. There's a reason they were doing that because they were trying to hide something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they sort of, I mean, you hear a lot about dirty money. Um, sort of washing through London. And, you know, what the story really shows is sort of what happens when the dirty money comes for you. Because there are all of these enablers, particularly in London, um, who are very willing to help large companies and oligarchs and other people deal with their critics. And so they were using big brand name law firms, um, uh, private detective firms, as well as all the sort of, you know, Lots of teams of more disreputable people like hackers and other things. Yeah, wow. Well, great, great, crazy to think. So I guess what has the fallout been from, uh, you know, why Carbase becoming insolvent due to their fraud? So um, Wirecard blew up. It was worth almost $30 billion at its peak, basically zero now. Um, there was a big parliamentary inquiry in Germany um, trying to learn the lessons of what happened? Something notable which hasn't happened in the UK. We've had quite a few big blow-ups, but not the same level of soul searching. And really, you know, there hasn't been a good, like a successful prosecution of fraud in the UK for a very long time. Um, but the the chief executive and a couple of his alleged accomplices are going on trial in the autumn. Um, the heads of sort of a few of the regulators resigned, the head of EY Germany resigned. And actually, I think you can see. One of the consequences is that Ernst & Young is now, this big global accounting firm, is now talking about breaking itself in two to separate consulting from its audit work. And I think uh, Wirecard really contributed to that. Yeah, just to get rid of those conflicts of interest. So, you know, we mentioned Jan behind you. Uh, is he sort of the man who they've all been blaming for... For, for, for this? I guess it's easy since it's disappeared. <laughs> well, this is the big unanswered question, isn't it? There are still some mysteries about Wirecard because, you know, we focus very much on the fraud, but it was at times doing different forms of money laundering. And he had all these secret service connections. So it was very useful for a lot of people that he did disappear because those questions now aren't answered. And also everyone can blame him and say, oh, I knew nothing about it. Yes, I guess as you said, it's uh, quite quite convenient for for everyone, and he can just be the scapegoat while maybe they get away with it. But I guess we'll have to see. Wait and see. <laughs> so, Dan, th- thank you so much for your time today. So, I guess uh, my, my last question: What do you want people to, you know, what's the one message you want people to take away from this book and maybe our interview? 
Um, I mean, sort of my life is in the book. And on the one hand, it's this sort of cautionary tale. You know, it's an age-old tale, isn't it, of greed, blindness to things that are too good to be true. But also, it's just this funny, ridiculous, thrilling tale of you don't believe these sorts of things happen in real life. And these mad characters, like the lunatic racing driver who lives in the world's tallest building, and is the one sort of pulling the strings behind the scenes to make the fraud happen. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I would just like, you know, it's one of those stories that I just had to write because it's so crazy. And I just, um, it's one of the great things is finally to be able to share it all with the world. Yeah, I'm sure you never expected uh, that when you went into journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This, this definitely took me to some unexpected places. Yeah, definitely. So, Dan, thanks again for your time. Uh, so, we've mentioned the book, uh, obviously, Money Men, which is available. Is it available most bookstores? Or uh, Money Men at all good uh, booksellers. Um, I tweet at FD, um, where you can find me um, talk about that and many other things. And, um, and also, I've got a website, which is danmacrum.com. And if you're interested to sort of follow the investigation as it happened, I've put most of the key financial time stories on there. So you can sort of see the evolution over time. And I think they're all free to read um, because we wanted to get attention for them. So not behind the normal financial times paywall. Yeah, awesome. And are you going to continue uh, following along or you think it's it's over, time to push it to the side? Oh, I mean, I'm still following this story and I still do investigations for the FT. Um, so, you know, if anyone does have some good tips about skullduggery and other behavior, please do get in touch. Andy, man, awesome. So, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.